that actress. If you're asking me if I did what she said, then I'm gonna get out of the fucking car. Well, I was gonna ask if you thought the exposure would interfere with doing field work. I seriously doubt it. You should sue her. When it's over, chick's loaded. Is that a fucking e-cigarette? Welcome to True Detective Weekly from the Idle Thumbs Network. I am Chris Remo. I'm Sean Vanneman. And I'm Jake Rodkin. This week we are discussing the third episode of True Detective, season two, Maybe Tomorrow. Yeah, uh, it was written as always by Nick Pesolato and was directed by Giannis Giannis Peterson. Peterson? Giannis Metz Peterson. Giannis Metz Peterson. All right. Yes. Known by many names. Uh, I think just known by that one. Oh. He's a Danish <laughs> documentary director. Okay. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Um, I, Chris, like, what did you think about the episode? Uh, well, it's appropriate that it was directed by a documentarian because it opened with the least factual, you know, like the most impressionistic thing we've maybe seen in any True Detective episode to date. Yeah, uh, this is when True Detective decided to just go full full Mulholland drive basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I loved it. I, I loved how completely off guard I was caught by how this episode opened, like just completely baffling. Um, you know, like, you know, we've been in this, in that, uh, that bar multiple times and it's always that same woman playing guitar and singing. Um, right. That's the same place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, the, it's the bar and that, uh, the, the that sta- Ray and Frank meet. Yeah, and the, talk. the yeah. stage was yeah. changed to be a way more stylized booth mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I really, really, really loved that scene—the outrageous Elvis impersonator—and it, it really put me off on the right foot for this whole episode, which already I thought was good. I mean, it's you know what we talked about last week in terms of um, settling into the uh, kind of pulpy crime thing that was just this entire episode at this point really yeah yeah, um, yeah i mean it was like full on we are just in the investigation now and the lines are all crossing and everything is just going and i thought it was really fun and had it like just kept momentum the whole time um and i really really liked it yeah i completely agree i just the, it was nice that like this was the first of the episodes where i kind of just didn't want it to end um yeah. and that's a really fun uh, like thing to experience in yep. a procedural or whatever, like in a mystery TV show. This is the episode that I feel like if you end up coming to True Detective late, like if you start wa- if you watch it when it's all uh like available on demand, that you hit and it's just like fuck it, staying up till three in the morning. <laughs> like I'm gonna stick with mm-hmm. this, you know. It's mm-hmm. like that gives you that that shot that shot in the arm. Yeah, there's just a confidence the in this oh, episode. Ahead, oh, sorry. There's just there's just a confidence this this week that was just not there in the two Justin Lin episodes. It feels like, mm-hmm. in my opinion, at least. I mean, the story's going somewhere too, but like, just the two things just converged. It just yeah, yeah the, sto- feels the story like- starts moving and just scenes feel like they have a purpose from a like when they're constructed for how they're shot and stuff in a way that I just felt was kind of a not there as much the last two weeks yeah from a direction standpoint it feels like uh there's it's kind of transitioned with like the new director into confident competence as opposed to like just camera movement camera movements trying to do too much 
And I really like that, especially considering it opens so in such a surreal fashion. Um, yeah. yeah, there was just so much good stuff in this episode. I mean, there's like my only criticisms about the episode are like kind of like the things it lacked, not necessarily the execution of the things it decided to do. But now that I kind of like have like I trust the season to like not be a mess. I those criticisms are like kind of like laid to rest as well because I'm like, oh, we'll get to like more of the Annie character stuff later, you know, because they did such a good job of starting to unpack Woodrow in a way that I thought was really compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, they, also, just in terms of characters generally, at this point, I think part of what makes this work, you know, we, we talked about how in season one, we're thrown into the dynamic of the two main characters just instantly. You know, I mean, there's essentially only two characters who really matter for the entire season in that, enti- you know, in that entire show. Uh, and so we're in, we're, we're immediately just... There's one dynamic between the two of them, and that's what really counts. Whereas this time, there's four main characters, and also the premise is just so much more complicated. And so now in episode three, we're finally at the point where we actually kind of know these characters, you know, like in a, you know, in a, um, a more comprehensive way than than we did. It took longer to get to that point, and so now we have little things like Annie catching more shit about her e-cigarette from a different character, and like that is just building like that can be a joke now because we already know that thing of her character. And we know that obviously no one else thinks it's cool. And like, it's (laughs) like, that's a really, it's a dumb example, but I just mean like you can, the show can be a little more relaxed now with moments like that because we have enough material for that stuff to actually land. Yeah. There's actually space to be surprised at this point now that there's a foundation and space to take a little bit more time. Sorry, go ahead, Sean. Oh, nothing. I was, it was actually just a subject change of while well, I was thinking over the episode mm-hmm. in my head. Um, I agree with you completely in that. I mean, that's sort of the joy of long form TV, right? It's not like, like a lot of shows don't use long form TV to its advantage, but like we're actually getting to know the characters and sort of like cadence of this world at like at a level of depth that you just don't get in any other form of like visual entertainment you don't get it mm-hmm. in um serial television you don't get it i guess this is serial right yeah you don't get it in like episodic television you don't get um or i don't know serials are the ones where they don't connect i always get them confused serials mm-hmm. versus episodic i cannot remember that i'll think about it and then it'll come to me which one's the which but uh yeah you just don't get it um man the uh, velcoro's dad played by fred ward so good Man, yep. like, ah, oh, gosh, like, I really like that actor a lot. Like, I think it's because I watched Tremors when I was like eight years old and he was <laughs> the best part of Tremors. That... Well, he always had a good face, but now he has a great face. Yeah, man. He was... <laughs> yeah, he's aged, aged into the, that face. Yeah, I really the, des- the destiny of that face. Yeah, <laughs> I really loved it. Um, I really and I loved his performance. I love the way like I love the interactions between um, his name's Eddie Velcoro, Eddie and Ray. Like I really yeah, both Dream Dad and Real Dad were strong. Yeah, and I was really impressed just on the page, like how how well that character was introduced in a dream state, and how the like ostensibly real version of that character, the non the living world dream uh, character, uh, was just fifteen degrees 
more grounded, you know, like I just really Mm -hmm. loved, I thought it was like great writing, amazing performance, just like really, really, really wonderful to watch. Um, And I loved their interaction. I think, I think it's really easy. It would have been really easy. And uh, I guess like admissible given how good the rest of the episode is to have their relationship be really cliched. You know, just sort of like, oh yeah, yeah the tough cop, but the dad oh, who's, drinks was, too much. It and, was good though. I, the, yeah. the way that the that the lucite wrapped police badge played into that whole conversation was was really good. I thought, yeah, just rescuing that out of the garbage and setting it there. Then at the end of the conversation, you're you as an audience member are like, eh, maybe that didn't need to be rescued out of the garbage. Actually, after I just heard all the things that guy said, yeah. maybe that could have stayed in the trash. Yeah, and I I just like that he like wasn't. Like that, there is an actual human connection between those two characters, and it felt so much more real than the father son relationships that are like the old cop, young cop, yeah, like relationships you see in most movies. A good example is like, do you ever see the movie Monsters Ball? Yeah, like that, or the relationship between Heath Ledger and Billy Bob Thornton in that in the beginning part of that movie is just like, okay, yeah, great, <laughs> like everything's miserable. We got it. Um. Whereas you see that these characters are actually products of a life that maybe even had happiness in it at one point, even if it was also layered with sadness and disappointment. Yeah, and just the ways that those two guys have been pulled down by their job is clearly just completely different, but at the same time... I like that he brought him pot. That was really yep. great. <laughs> and I also, like, I'm totally bought in, Chris, um, this, this is a bit of a hard shift, but I'm totally bought in to the world now in that this is just whatever version of historically rooted fiction slash mm-hmm. geography that makes sense for the story. Like I'm fine that there's like an OJ reference inside it. Like I'm <laughs> was fine. an American sniper movie poster. Yeah. yeah what was, was that? American sniper billboard. Oh my God. That was amazing. That was so crazy to me. Like that was the thing I actually got it. Thanks for reminding me about that. What did you guys think of that? So for like, if, if you, to jog it. your memory if, for the people at home like there's a shot of is it it's either of colin farrell or taylor kitsch it's when kitsch is out interviewing prostitutes I yeah think. and he's it opens with him either not in frame or in the bottom of the frame he's like tiny in the bottom because left the top corner, of the frame is like american, two-thirds yeah. sniper. Is just american sniper billboard like what on earth and it's and it holds for like a solid second and a half yeah it was what mm-hmm. did you guys think of that just being like oh also this is in the world that you and i occupy with the pop culture that you and i consume literally six months ago <laughs> i mean i thought it was totally fine i think that it's that it uh there's if you're going to just say this is set now i think it's totally fine to just to just go for it you know that's a movie that was huge and if you know if you're watching this episode 20 years from now that's it's not going to be like a weird obscure poll probably uh, um, I, don't I don't know i don't think that's, i think yeah. i think american sniper is big but i think america when it came out but i don't think american sniper is going to hold as like it's not jurassic world as like a reference for our time like well, american sniper could but i think 20 years from now like a college student could watch i could see them watching true detective and be like huh the guy they have like a good one they put a poster up for a movie called american sniper a classic echo of the times without knowing that that's an actual movie like but yeah but 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 you can spend literally half a second yeah of course whatever you do in fucking 2040 
Um, but I, I don't know. I thought think I, differently, and then it'll you, you know you can you can Bing it as well. I'll be doing in twenty forty. <laughs> Uh, but, no, I thought I thought that was totally fine. And then the, the actually the version of that 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 it was kind of similar, but slightly funnier to me was that the film that was being shot appeared to be some kind of like Mad Max thing. Oh that was yeah. The, yeah, that was the one that actually the, the American Sniper one. I'm like, okay, this is like a literal product of its time. Like they're not trying to make it like a fake. Ver- they're not making up a movie that seems like American Sniper or something. Um, but the the film being shot, that's the one that actually was a little more uncanny valley. Really quick me. before we get into the film, because there's some weird stuff about that film that that I saw actually on our forums. Um, just the film that the the, the film fake that is movie the set, fake movie that, that is being shot that that Casper's got some back end deals tied up in. The thing that I liked actually specifically about the American Sniper movie poster is that at this day and age, it would have been easy to digitally replace that and they chose not to and i yeah i like that a lot like i like you it seems like you cannot get a shot of Times square at this thing. point without like additional sponsorships being added or you can't get a billboard in without it digitally being changed to be uh you know a commercial consideration and i liked that they are just they pro maybe they went and put that billboard up but i bet that was just in the location they were filming in so they just filmed it um, yeah, I always wonder about that stuff because like there's so that stuff is so like if that is actually an HBO cross promotion because they're gonna have American Sniper on their network like in a couple weeks, I'll be so bummed. Really? Basically. Oh, I don't care. Oh, what? <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't care either because it's so imperceptible. A... It's yeah. literally indistinguishable from reality. I guess yeah. I won't care in the long term. In 2040, <laughs> there was a weird American Sniper violator that came up. I would be a little more. You know, <laughs> that would be strange. The little so the, the sniper, American. Like, pops up from the bottom of the screen and goes Sunday on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. But somehow that was part of the text. He shoots a little Colin Farrell with like rubber meta bullets. Fi- meta fiction. <laughs> Man, speaking of, speaking of rubber bullets. So, I mean, we all basically, I mean, this is obviously the biggest question that was answered from last episode. We all, none of us expected, uh, you know, Ray Volcoro to be dead. Obviously. Um, I was, I, since I didn't expect him to be dead, I, I, had no particularly strong reaction to it being, you know, riot buckshot. Basically, I thought that stuff was all fine. Yeah, I also think it's fine as like as a narrative device um, inside of this genre because it feels like True Detective season two is much like more codified in the noir genre than the sort of like psychotropic. Well, the first one was almost like drama of whatever season one was you know the season one was almost a southern gothic kind of thing yeah so the fact that this just feels so like confidently rooted in real noir like just pulpy whatever yeah and it makes, like and it, it's a chapter it, it, break it's like yeah he gets hit with a blackjack and goes face down in the mud and then mm-hmm. in the next chapter it starts and he's like rubbing his head and having a having a whiskey you know it's like <laughs> that's just well, like that's a and also to 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 this is a very loose 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 tie but you know, to connect back to comparison we made, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we sort of com- compared it to certain like Thomas Pynchon stuff like Inherent Vice or The Crying of Lot uh, 39. Which one? What is, which lot 49. is it The Crying of? It's, it's 49. 49. 49. So. Ten, 10 lots. <laughs> 39 <laughs> is the previous work. Yeah. yeah that was just, um, a, that was just a, some like old diplomats golf clubs was lot right. 39. <laughs> lot 49. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a really kind of broad, loose parallel you can draw there between um, sort of California counterculture and 
the world of sort of corrupt cops and so on. Like that stuff is all, there's all, there's sort of a milieu of California fiction that all kind of ties into, um, you know, like crooked cops and corruption and land deals and all this. And, and the sense of this just like overarching um, kind of unavoidable conspiracy that sort of envelops everything. Man, even, um, even Lebowski I, plays into that. And like the imagery of that, mm-hmm, whenever yeah. he, whenever he gets knocked on the head or drugged out or, goes unconscious it basically turns into the opening of this episode as well as far as just that pastiche oh, existing yeah, yeah, everywhere yeah. that's true yeah. well and the reason i bring this up in in to sort of expand on sean's general kind of noir comparison is that you know ray makes a particular point when he's telling annie about what happened is that like you know he used riot gear like cops use you know it's a very pointed like she <laughs> she already knows and he knows that she suspects him of being crooked because her department told her so. And then he makes the further observation that the stuff that was used against him is the kind of stuff cops are equipped with. And we also know as the viewers that this entire goddamn region is just completely under the thumb of like entrenched interests, uh, you know, involving local government and, uh, and the mob and everything else. Um, and so I, this, I, you know, this just further situates 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 this all within that world. And then you have the father character, who's a very sort of disillusioned former cop, and you know, you have Annie, who sees herself as a very um, like by the book person. You know, in contrast to her kind of hilarious burnout hippie father. Um, I don't know if burnout's the right word, but you know, uh, kind of wishy washy spiritual kind of guy. Um, trying to work, trying to like do her job the best she can in the face of her own problems and also this like ridiculous corrupt structure that's already basically trying to prevent her from doing her job the way she wants to. Um, And I think, so this episode I think like really double, like tied a lot of that stuff together thematically in a way that, that I think was really strong. Something that I think is like really amazing just to like piggyback on that um, whole uh, conversation about genre is that I don't think I've ever like True Detective season two is not based on a previous work. This is just Nick Pizzolatto sitting down to write eight episodes of television. Although um, it is, it is strongly based on it. Not strongly, but it is inspired by a historical event. Yes. It, well, it's not that that's not. Yeah. That's kind of, that's beside the point I'm about to make. Okay. Sure, um, sure. But uh, unlike um, True Detective season one was not necessarily based on his novel. Um, Galveston, I think was the name of it, mm-hmm. but um, the backdrop, and I think um, maybe I don't know. I've never read the novel, but I don't. I don't think it was like a one to one adaptation. But I do know that the like tone, the novel, crossover. the novel was the springboard into the show for him in terms of actually getting the job. But so he he is a writer. Uh, he like taught fiction at a university and things like this. And I don't think I've ever seen a TV show that felt like an adaptation or like a piece of literature like this show does. Like this show really feels to me this season or the whole show that this season, excuse me. Yeah. Season two, like right now, three episodes in, it really feels like this is based on a piece of pulp fiction in a way that I really, really like in the way that like when I watch the, like the big sleep or the third man or like from the era of like post classical, I guess Hollywood film, where no, it doesn't matter. Um, where so much of the work was at was adapted, and that was like that was a high culture thing to do and to do well, 
and the great actors of the time were in these movies based on these great books. Um, I don't think I've seen anything ever so like that. with that in mind, a line that stuck out to I oh, think a lot of people in this episode is, about, yeah. is the use of apoplectic uh-huh. um, in just common speech. That is a line that I think would not jump out to people if this had actually come off the page of a piece of crime fiction. It definitely wouldn't have jumped out to people if it was a line in The Big Sleep, because people would have just been like, would have rolled with it. And you would roll with it now as a modern audience looking back on an old, tiny piece of fiction. I, I, but I, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I, also, I think that's oh, the, some of the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to... I don't know if if you want to talk about that one particular word or that like, bundle of phrasing, Chris. Um not really. I wasn't as – it didn't feel to me as much of a speed bump as it apparently did to a bunch of people. Yeah, that's because you have a real good vocabulary. Say milieu again. The way you say you, – you're able to say milieu in a way that sounds casual. <laughs> this is <laughs> – I don't need to. I don't need to hear you say it, Chris. I can imagine it. Um, the, I think that 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 call me later and say it. <laughs> I think that 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 little tiny bundle of conversation brought up, and I know every week, um, someone can't resist talking about season one in comparison to season two. But I think it's an interesting thing about season one and its ability to get away with strange speech patterns and strange presentations of events is that like two thirds of that show, especially in the first many episodes. Is a first fr- half or so. In the first half is a frame story told by what you're not sure is an unreliable narrator or a straight up flashback. So everyone having this weird, like their own sort of heightened speech, I don't think is as noticeable in, in the in the first season. And this season, well, especially Rust Cole, Rust. Who's introduced. As, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, Rust is just a fucking right. But in this in this season, we have characters who still speak in manners like that, but it's just being presented as this is objectively what happened in a way that you don't have in the in the first season of True Detective. Yeah, I'm in a weird spot with that because I've been while I've been working and like writing on the game, I've been watching just in the background True Detective season one, just like that in that like half awake part where i'm paying attention and i'll catch myself like tuning in to hear russ go on one of his fucking jags Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i'll just go what like what no 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 like it's so much different than i remember it i remember it as sort of like being ethereal and washing over me and being seductive and now going back and watching it a second time i'm like holy hell (laughs) like this i kind of i kind of had the same experience so actually related to this and then jake i want to ask you a different question after this but but related to what we're talking about now one thing we actually didn't talk about last week that i that that a lot of people did and i think we just we just kind of ran by it for for no particular reason was um was frank's whole monologue that opened the episode about his dad you know locking him in the basement he you know light goes out he kills the rats you know like that that was a really that was probably this the longest single character piece of monologue in the season so far and the closest thing to that kind of explicitly literary speech that season one had so much of yeah I um, and so i don't know i know that we're on season, we're in episode three now but since that was a kind of a big thing that we didn't talk about do you guys have any thoughts on that in general especially in relation to what we're talking about now um it's funny, like, you know, something I really like about uh, a series in general is the relationship I build with the series in general. So this not dis not dissimilar to like 
dating someone. I know that's really weird, but like when I started watching episode two and Frank Semyon started telling that story about being locked mm-hmm. in the basement, I was in this emotion. I was in this state as an audience member where I wasn't ready to to submit to the to the show. You were still leaning back, arms crossed exactly. after after episode one. You're yeah. like, okay, true detective, what's going? Yeah. Oh, this is what you're doing right now, huh? Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're <laughs> exactly right. Where I enjoyed it, <laughs> but I like it way more retrospectively than I did I at the time because at the time I wasn't ready to trust it. But now yeah, it feels I, I, like I strong, confident. Uh, like filmmaking but well I, yeah. I think that's actually main I think for me that's especially true in the context of of Frank because we are now starting to see him unravel out of desperation a bit and he's actually becoming that kid in the basement again you know like I he's starting it. to smash the rat like he's because he's he's so it is he holds his civility so dearly it's clear, you know, he, he is someone who strives for legi- for legitimacy and really, really yearns to use his kind of criminal gains to establish a foothold yeah. as a legitimate businessman. And now he's being forced back yeah, he's, into he's putting gold teeth in a drawer. World. Yeah. Yeah. So he's back and, in the and basement. You can tell that it's just fighting for his life, basically. Right. He's comfortable in that world, but also very frustrated to be forced back into it. And so he has a tinge of that desperation. And I I really actually think as much as I don't know how I feel about Vince Vaughn in this role overall, I I buy his desperation with in the scenes with his wife in particular, because he is so he is so lost. You know, obviously he summons his kind of confidence when he's going and kicking the shit out of somebody or whatever, but he doesn't really know what the hell he's doing. Like he's, he's over his head in this deal that completely bottom fell out of when Casper died. Um, and his relationship with his wife, who's the actress's name, I can't recall. Um, those scenes are, are better than they have any right to be. I kind of think. I completely agree. Like I, I, I think they're doing a, fin- a really great job with that character as well, because uh, I just, I, I feel like they're subverting so much of the expectations you have for the mob boss trope inside of a noir inside in the noir genre. When it's revealed at first, he's kind of surrounded by porn and you realize he's like getting a blow (laughs) job. And then you, it's revealed that it's all in the um, efforts to make a baby with his wife at a fertility clinic. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful, like, just unveiling of that fact. And it, it yep. provides this whole new dimension to that relationship where at one point, these two adults, sh- like this woman who has chosen this man, knowing that he is a criminal, knowing the life that he leads, knowing that he's, knowing his past, obviously, but knowing where he's headed They've decided to make a baby or try to make a baby at this time. This says so much about the character. And then to see him have like that personal struggle of confidence on top of all the weight that's bearing down on him. He even says that too, right? He even says something to that effect about Mm -hmm. how he, he can't fuck up anything. All the stakes are too high in anything in his life. And then to see him go from that to taking his jacket off and 
regressing back to the man who we assumed that he was in the past and just beating the living shit out of that guy. Oh man. I, I well, think it, steps, I completely it starts with, him with it. It's, it's, it's the scene with the wife to him, like stepping on the construction foreman guy to then him ripping out the guy's teeth. Right. Right? Oh, you're like, right. It's right. just like, yeah. Wah, wah, like it's just this <laughs> like path of, and yeah, then it does just end with him back at home with his wife. Who's like, who's waiting up with him for him kind of like, Hoping maybe something would happen, and then he's just like dumping hi- teeth in a trash yeah, can, hiding off in the living room, dumping teeth. Man, I thought when it was cutting, when it cut back to him at the end of the conversation, he was going to dump another five teeth. <laughs> her <laughs> name, the actress's name, by the way, is Kelly Riley. Okay, and her I, I her character she's she's doing really her character's name is Jordan. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the Vince Vaughn is just much is yeah. To you, I mean, it's kind of ungenerous to use the language, but is. All of the stuff around him and his character is more is better than it has any right to be. I think, given yeah, yeah. given the pieces at play, yeah, really, really. Um, so, so we, uh, you know, as with last episode, I guess the character we're taking the longest to get to is Paul Widra. But, but uh, Sean, you already indicated, I think, or Jake, I forget. One of you guys mentioned you like how he's going. I this was maybe the one arc this episode that I thought was like a little on the nose or like a little obvious that, you know, that I don't know. I don't know if I really feel strongly that way, but um, compared to the previous couple episodes where I felt that his past was being teased out in a really restrained, uh, really um, subtle way. Uh, this seemed like a very, it was almost like a trope, the like old buddy who it turns out, you know, he had a thing with, uh, and he gets really pissed at him because he brings it back up again. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think? It definitely felt like a, a trope to me, but I thought the writing, I think plot, I think the plot, I'm more critical of the plot element in the way of what you're, I'm critical of the things that you're saying, I should say, but I think on the page, it was still pretty great. I thought it gave him enough subtext for the actors to just act. And I actually watched that scene twice and then i was reading the grantland um recap of it and i think chris ryan is the guy who writes over there said something like you should watch this scene again i was like oh that's coincidentally i had watched it twice um because i didn't feel like i understood what had happened when he turned on him because i wasn't really 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 listening at that moment and uh yeah i i mean i i agree with you but i still bought it and I like to see this actor in this role. I, I didn't know, I like it. I wasn't into that scene at the um, sort of the dirt bike racing or something. In yeah, the, the in, motocross thing. In the moment, I wasn't into it, but I liked that it put that character in the headspace that he was in when he then started having to deal with the both women and men prostitutes and get escorted into the club yes, by that guy that he was paying true. off. That was, like, that was a fantastic like, whole the fact that he sequence, had, The yeah. fact that he was just you know asking that guy like, so you do women and like just having all these having all these in- interactions mm-hmm. that you know are intense as hell for that character on any day with what he's carrying but having that happen right after he gets physical with like with the guy who is prop it seems like maybe the person who he's had a homosexual yeah, interaction with at all clear, yeah. i mean like yeah. i don't know how many other just guys he's been with in any capacity right. okay, but sure. like Regardless of like that white hot moment, as sort of tropey as it was, was was good because of the way that it frames the rest of his night, which is just like 
Mm-hmm. I you agree. know, I agree. Keeps the intensity high for 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 where he where he is ends up as a character. Yeah, I yeah, mean, that's, that's a good point. I think I, I agree with Jake in that. Anytime at this stage where there's a scene that I think is sort of tropey or not earned, in you'll at least three, give it the like, let's see where this goes. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. feels like well, maybe this is setting me up for something, and thus far, it's really been doing that pretty. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The show, the show, it's this season, I mean, has weirdly earned a lot in retrospect, yeah. which is kind of funny. Yeah, it's so not it's, something you think of sort of, from TV because, yeah. I've been in this phase where I've been going into um, just highly regarded movies with really big expectations, either from people telling me a movie is great or glancing at the Rotten Tomatoes score before I go into it. I watched a horror movie called It Follows. And I watched Ex Machina for the first time last night. Mm-hmm. I like I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is I went into both of those movies with incredibly unrealistically high expectations uh, yeah. because of the two things that I just mentioned. So I totally feel like I've lost my compass for uh, like not even criticism. Like criticism you can do and not really have to, have to ask yourself if you liked it or didn't like it. But I've lost my compass for knowing if I enjoyed something, <laughs> but I think it was really helpful. It's too bad. I know. Considering, considering the, what I'm being asked to do at this exact second. Yes. But I, the best thing this fucking season did was lay an egg on that first episode because now I am in love with this season because it was just like, I expected nothing out of you, you dumb kid. But now look straight A's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. On that note, it'll be really interesting to see what the heck happens with Annie's dad and her sister later in the show, because that is oh. still the eggiest egg. Of, of <laughs> I, this thought, I thought in terms of expecting something from a dumb kid, I thought you were going to talk about Ray Valcora's. Oh, Ray Valcora's. Oh. Just- <laughs> I have no expectations for that actual dumb kid. That's fine. He's not coming yeah. back. The kids. Oh, maybe not. Who knows? Every time we say he's not coming back, like, oh, he'll be back. Betty Draper's not coming back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he'll be back. Um, do you guys? Okay, so, okay, Jake. Oh. Sorry, sorry. I. Oh, you have a question ever, for me? Yeah. Well, did you ever say what was notable about the film that was being shot? Okay. So, well, regardless of the actual contents and where it fits into the mystery and anything else. A lo- there's a lot of ink spilled this week about the director of that film being uh, oh Fukunaga being Kerry Fukunaga yeah and just, oh it was no 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 no, no. about it being him, um, him being a Fukunaga oh. alike and it being Nick Pizzolatti just getting some fucking dirt out and just like just or getting like grievances out aired in the middle of the second season of True Detective where people are like oh he's you know oh you know what's funny about that because I had no that literally did not even occur to me and I remember after that scene in the show I turned to Sarah and I was like is there any significance to the fact that like in a world where unfortunately Asian American directors are not that common the first season was directed by an Asian American, the first two episodes of the second season directed by an Asian American, and then a character in the third season is an Asian American director. Um, I just thought it was notable. Not that it, I didn't know, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that it meant anything. Yeah, I, I, just I have it was no idea. I have no idea if, if it does mean anything. But people have said like, oh, he has, you know, some they similar appearances, similar hair, and that, and that, and yeah, that he's obviously not here, and that there is some beef going on. If that, that it was like a documented thing during season one that Fukunaga and Pizzolatto that, that those guys did not were, get along. Yeah. yeah had had trouble oh wow that's fascinating yeah. so that would really bum me out if it was that petty but uh whatever um i don't have any strong thoughts on it in any particular way but that's like that character just showed up and kind of was an aloof dick in a couple scenes or in in his scene for no real apparent reason 
and then he was just gone from the show. Like, yeah. other they, than get off my set sort of situation. Yeah, but like yeah. they could have like they could have had it be anyone. It could have been a PA. It could have been any of the other characters they interviewed. But then just director shows up and like, you know, that felt still very like noir tropey to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it, it's all tropey, whichever I, I like. It all it's all totally it all works. Welcome. Like I think it, the archetypes work. I mean, in terms of any inside baseball about that scene, the thing that I always find myself wondering outside of watching the show, my brain goes, this is like a lot of moving parts for this scene. This is a really big, expensive movie set. I was wondering that, you too. Know, so I'm like, like, were they actually just shooting a movie that kind of looked like this? Or did they go to a Hollywood set and were like, oh, yeah, this is a, like... We'll use this. This seems fine. This right, is... It looks like it looks like their production design was build a weird corrugated metal Mad Max hideout, build like two Mad Max cars, like dump all this cement here, and then also staff an entire second film set that we can shoot on yeah. our film set. It just is a big expensive scene that made me wonder if they somehow got that for cheaper. You know what I mean? If it said, oh yeah, yeah, come got on. Got a little here. tax break from, uh, yeah, from old Casper. things where it's like, <laughs> look, we know they're shooting this thing. We can dress up the actors in these old Wrath of Khan outfits that so and so found on the lot. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. And if we shoot this gorilla style in a day, right? Because that's the we'll classic get it, way. We'll, we'll get, we'll when get you do cheap. like yeah. Hollywood filming Hollywood, you just actually film it at the studio backlot of the company that's funding your movie, and then just use the set that's I'm there. S- I'm sure that was a backlot situation. It had to have been. There's no reason why. Yeah, like, I don't know. Well, what? It's, <laughs> why would you spend all the money? Because it's yeah. really good. That I want to know the story of it. Because it's so good that there's just a stupid. Mad Anybody Max knows yeah. or can lie to us about knowing. <laughs> it's questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. I like to also just. I mean, we don't. There's not a whole lot of like mystery. I was gonna say mystery meat, which is not what I meant to say, but like just sort of like <laughs> still said it. I that, well, I can't not say mystery meat. Um. You know the the mystery does sort of develop in this episode, but I, I like as Casper gets increasingly dug into. He just apparently has his mitts into everything. I guess like where he's just rail corridor development, weird secret houses, yeah, film like greasing the wheels of like. It feels film like this is production. somehow like Casper is a relic of the forties. Yeah, who somehow like, exists operating in 2015. Yeah, he's just like, he's like just crime magnate. It's because yeah. like he looked just like a sort of derpy middle-aged guy, but he's apparently just like rolling in these crazy Hollywood parties and like visiting film sets and like uh, Yeah, I don't know. I I I like I like just that he is apparently uh, increasingly a larger than life character in the midst of the rest of this story. It, it, it's yeah, not quite what I was expecting, but it's I don't I don't dislike it. Um the one other thing I wanted to bring up was so the two times we've seen what is meant to be either the killer or just a criminal co- participant. A member of this, like, of it's either a killer or someone in, like, that cabal, whatever right. it is. Yeah. They've had real crazy masks on. Oh, yeah, they have True Detective production design <laughs> masks on, for yeah. sure. Like, what did you guys think of, uh, who's that big Japanese like demon guy, ghost guy who you see at Comic Con and as cosplay sometime, who's just got the big white oval face. Oh, is that, it's from a Miyazaki. It's movie, from a right? Miyazaki movie. Yeah. But yeah, they were chasing baby Miyazaki villain. Yeah, through the streets of Los and through the back alleys of L.A. Uh, what did you guys think about? How, what do you guys think in general about that stuff? I really liked it with the bird, and now I'm just sort of flummoxed. And I, I don't, don't mind it personally because, like, if that's really if that sort of strange aesthetic of basically just seedy, dirty world that then just has an a killer who dresses like hipster art 
if that's the through line of True Detective, fine. Because, like, all the stuff in season one, wherever, whenever yeah. you sort of get into the, like, Yellow King, Carcosa stuff, you could also just be in Freets in the mission in San Francisco. Like, you could just, like, someone's, like, paper mache wrapped brambly branch man it really took me a second to figure out where you were going <laughs> you could be in a danish fry shop no just like yeah just like <laughs> a, a hipster Belgium. waiter could be serving you something with a true detective antler above him as you. he's like giving you artisanal brussels sprouts <laughs> and like that is the thing that is the same aesthetically to me between season one and season two like whenever like that array of masks or like the killer leaning over that white foam uh baffled room it's just like okay this could actually just be like you could buy an art print of that and an art print of, you know, uh, McConaughey walking through a weird brambly antler festival and, like, they would both f- feel acceptable. Mm. And, like, in that in that way, yeah. I totally don't mind it. Um, it was a little I bit agree. strange. I, th- but. I, I think it's – I think that the part of – if there's anything that links these two seasons so far, it's that just weird unsettling sense of something – that verges on the the supernatural but clearly is not not clearly i mean like they skirt they skirt the sensations that you're intended to feel in supernatural fiction without literally making that the subject matter mm-hmm. and i think that's that must just be something nick pizzolato is finds interesting and that, that you know that, that might just be the the thin thread that connects these, yeah, like, these seasons I, I actually really didn't like that about the aesthetic of true detective season one like i didn't like that the killer when that girl is found like has added that oh, man cr- we should be careful about spoilers so i'm talking about the pilot the pilot episode of true detective oh, okay, about yeah. the, when the body uh-huh. is found and it's that girl who's got the crazy yeah. antler decor and all like just the ribbons and strings and stuff because it did just feel like something you'd buy in a like hipster neighborhood shop for your house like but then you might also just be more susceptible to that than the average viewer because we live in a i know we live in it we live in a place where that stuff is just (laughs) we live at ground zero of that shit yeah Yeah, we live in the heart of it in san francisco but just at this point i've just made peace with the fact that that's there because it, it actually is at odds with so much of the rest of the aesthetic and kind of again like we were talking about with just a weird thing that comes up makes you say that's odd i forgave it because I thought that chase sequence was great. I liked the way that it ended with the crazy truck, um, like and uh, Ray diving, keep you know keeping keeping Annie from dying by way of truck, and then you just sort of see the white mask face just disappear into the uh, the morass of underpasses of of and overpasses of Los Angeles. Uh, well, I actually to 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 go back before the ending a little bit. Maybe the maybe the thing that felt the most to me like True Detective season one in this entire season so far was the chase through the homeless tent uh, encampment, which felt like just the kind of dismal, completely pervasive poverty that so much of the locations in in season one um you know, yeah, that like suffused with this just like overwhelming denseness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that was, I mean, it's, it was, it's depressing, uh, but it, but it was powerful. You know, I mean, it's, 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 um, that kind of thing is in a lot of cop shows, you know, cops just like storming through, um, you know, uh, uh, urban environments like that. But in the context of, of something like true detective, which, so far, both seasons are very bleak and very dismal in their overall 
evaluation of humanity and civilization, um, it 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 takes on a bit more weight, I think, than it than it would in a in a sort of a network police drama where it was, it's purely set dressing. Yeah, that feeling um, of that of that incredibly dense space where they're running through, and you almost feel like you could just get caught or fall over, or and you would just be pulled into it. Is you're, yeah, that, it, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Um, so do you guys want to, do you guys want to, um, sounds like we all liked the episode. Do you guys want to do a couple pieces of reader mail? Yes. What if we said no? Listener mail. Well, then I would say thanks for being on the podcast. Goodbye. You'd be saying that to Sean though, and not to listen. I would, I would. Yes. Um, all right. So, uh, we take listener mail at questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in the pattern, so far is that we tend to get emails towards the end of the week, um, which means we get them too late to actually talk about the episode they're about when we record our episode. So if uh, next week when listening to, uh, I'm sorry, after watching episode four of True Detective season two, if you want to get some email in that night or the following morning, there's a good chance that we will be able to get it on the podcast in time. Um Anyway, here's here's a couple here's a couple pieces we've gotten since last week. So JB writes, um, Ray's not dead yet, so whoever had the bird mask on didn't want to kill him, or they're carrying a gun loaded with rubber bullets, as we know. Um, but they wanted the hard drive. It seems like all the main characters are being tracked and harmed to varying degrees. Ray is shot with rubber bullets, Andy's car is set on fire, Paul's picture is being taken, and Frank's money was stolen from his crooked, crooked and murdered business partner. Is it all the same person or group behind all of it? I think the shadiest character is Ray's partner, the drunk old guy. It looked like he was the one taking pictures of Paul. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't understand who Stan was or where Frank's men found his body. Man, we didn't talk about Stan. Was he left somewhere as a warning or threat? Anyway, thanks for putting the podcast out on Monday. Whoops. I love listening in the close aftermath of the show and the excitement is still fresh. JB. Um, so this email actually brings up a couple things we just didn't touch on at all. <laughs> um, we didn't talk about the new corpse, which was killed in very similar fashion to Casper. And we didn't talk about um, Paul being tailed and photographed by Ray's, uh, by Ray's partner. Yeah. I mean, I assume that Ray's partner, and maybe this is wrong, is just like, evidence that Ray's superiors are are losing a little faith in him so mm. they put just the skeeziest of the skis dirtbag on him and <laughs> yeah. on his on his like the people he's working with to yeah, start like, as well, like as like an insurance policy yeah if Ray's not going to be bringing us the dirt we're just going to put other officers on on Ray and his team and that guy is just just what a fucking garbage pile <laughs> you know just just in every single scene and every just the in the, all of his, the Vinci police in general is is a well cast group of just <laughs> yes, smug, smug, dumpy, just dirty. Except police. for the chief of police, that dude, just his posture. Yeah, he wears his dress blues every day. But because of that, he's now just like the king of them. I know. When I you like see him in the room with just everyone else, you're just like, oh, everyone. Yeah, yeah. He's. But that was my suspicion with that. And then, um, mm-hmm. did you want to touch on the body? Yeah, we might as well, right? It's the, it's the yeah. yeah it's I had the less, I had less sort of like, less sort of like strong feelings about, or less thoughts. I just sort of like, okay, yeah, I'm with it. Let's go. Um, so yeah, I kind of felt, I felt the one. same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, this char- that the character who was killed is not one we knew much about, right? This guy Stan, one of Frank's guys. I mean, no. he was 
he was introduced for this purpose, right? I don't know. He had showed up earlier. He's been in the episode. He was, but just, but just as a like a generic henchman guy, right? Like, he's yeah, not... he's had a few lines here and there, but he isn't yeah, like yeah, yeah. he doesn't seem like he's like a cornerstone. I, I have a question about this yeah. email, actually. So the car that set on fire at the end of this episode is that what he was referring to in the mail? Because I did not think that was Annie's car. Is it? I thought it was because is it is that the car? And by, when you say is that the car, I oh when they said when they said mean... is that the car, I thought they meant is that the car that Casper's body was left in that we tr- uh, was found in the security oh. camera because the person they were interviewing was the person who left the film set two weeks prior and the car was from the film set. Yeah, that's so I thought, I thought they too. went around the corner and went is that the car? Uh, is like is that the car that we saw the bad? F- I think it's the stolen car. stoplight Which, photo okay. of. So then I think the person in the mask yeah, was right. was not out to kill them; they were destroying evidence. Yeah, and then they happened to. It was just bad timing that they came around the corner right when that car was being burned, or it was like a yeah, race yeah. to burn the car before the cops surveyed the area where that where that kid was playing dumb. Like that was that was the feeling. Okay. That, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, like I thought that was just that crappy '70s sedan that we saw in the first mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought so too. Um, okay, which makes um, it which makes it less about. Like the, the it undermines the the through line of this email a, a, a little bit in that just Annie isn't being actively antagonized, but I'm, mm-hmm. she, but everyone's basically being antagonized in some way or another, um, even if not by the same. Sure. Annie was antagonized by that eighteen wheeler that almost smashed her. She was. I mean, she was antagonized by all of her superiors. Everyone's trying to kill these people. This eighteen wheeler is out to get Annie. <laughs> it's like rubber. <laughs> um, all right. So Rudy Basso writes, "I'm getting an information overload with this show." Each week we're being introduced to several new characters. Mayor's family, Ray's father, this makes apparent each we've seen for the three cops. Paul's old and maybe new man lovers. And new subplots. Ray and wife want to have a baby. Some guy's taking pictures of Paul. Someone killed Stan. Who is Stan? We're not even halfway through yet, so obviously we can't see the big picture. But do you guys have faith that Pizzolatto can tie up these loose ends in a satisfactory way in five more episodes? I'm beginning to think more and more that Carrie Fukunaga might have been the glue holding season one together. And given free reign, Pizzolatto is going to full-on spaghetti wall-throwing mode. Put my mind at ease, thumbs, Rudy. Uh, it doesn't feel like spaghetti wall throwing to me. It just feels like a big, rich ensemble, and that you kind of you're you have to you can, if you try to hold on to all of it with equal importance, you're going to drive yourself fucking crazy. So I, you, I agree. You know, you have to sort of let most of it wash over you as set dressing, even if it's a person with a voice and a name and a, and, every, and everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then try yeah. to hold on to the things that are thematically important and narratively important. You know, and if you don't like. That's okay. It's like a book. I mean, you can go back and read. Un- it until it all falls apart at the end, obviously, if that happens. But I, I'm, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that guy can't happen. I think we talked about it enough in this in this episode over the course of it. But I think we are we're all sort of in trust building mode with the season at this point, as opposed to the apprehension mm-hmm. that we were feeling earlier. I think across uh, the board. Yeah, and I think the I think the historical precedent for this is, as we've said a number of times, is is the sort of. Um, n- uh, noir crime tradition, which often does have these very intricate plots and lots of layers of crisscrossing sort of corruption and double dealing. And then the the modern equivalent of that is sort of neo-noir story, like a satirical version like The Big Lebowski or um, certain kinds of modern um, crime or spy fiction, like the film adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, yep. which also just throws a basically impossible amount essentially an impossible number of plot threads at you um and it's kind of up to you to keep a running priority list and just discard the stuff that becomes part of the the overall um uh emotional kind of tapestry yeah i I still think the show did not do a great job of actually setting off on that quest but i think now that we're inside of it Mm -hmm. it's it's i'm I'm enjoying it Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, cool. All right. Some, well, yeah, it's sort of inc- sorry not to belabor that point, but I, I mean, I, we've we have belabored the fact that it started off really poorly, and it's sort of ridiculous that that's basically like what fifteen percent or twelve like of a the entire season was just a. <laughs> just sort of like yep. just but didn't really land we'll see um as opposed to like a 22 episode season or like a multi-season show at this point assuming the ending of the show is like on the trajectory that we're on right now i'm probably actually going to go back around and rewatch. oh yeah epi- episode too, 201 too. at the end of the season i was just mm-hmm. thinking when this when i was thinking where my brain went when this email started was you know like i watch game of thrones there's so much bullshit in there like there's so much just just nonsense just so many characters so many threads but also, that show just seems like it goes on forever. Right. Like, I've suffered through a lot of bad episodes of Game of Thrones and don't really care. Right. But in this case, when it's eight episodes and you're, exactly like, well, right. when you're like, it's it's 12% of the story or whatever, it's a division problem that I am dumb. But, like, that's a, that's <laughs> a substantial a amount. Like, if you if you ripped out a tenth or a fifteenth of a book, that's a lot of book. Anyway, um, you, uh, en- enough. Sorry. Thanks for the email, though. Yeah. Good email. Yeah. Um, cool. So unless you guys have anything else to, to cap off, um, so it sounds like we've pretty much set our piece on this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. There's been some really good discussion going on on the Idle forums. So that's, that's true, the, yeah. um, we uh, have a broader network called the uh, Idle Thumbs Podcast Network where we have a bunch of video game and culture shows and we have online forums there and there's a True Detective Weekly dedicated thread and there's been some really great discussion with our community. We have a really sen- like sensational, thoughtful community. So if you are one of those types of people who likes to talk with people on the internet about the things that you're watching and thinking about, that is a great place to do it. And you can find it at idlethumbs.net. Click on forums at the top of the homepage. And just scroll down a ways. There's a section for all of our shows. There's a True yeah. Detective Weekly forum there. And yep, if you so, have... so people have each discuss each episode of the shows they come out as well as our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if you have any questions for us, like Chris said, it's questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. And if you happen to like this show, tell a friend. It means a lot to us. It's actually really, mm-hmm. really helpful. It's the only way we gain listeners. Um, we don't have, we don't buy like weird advertising for this or anything. But if you tell a friend or rate us on iTunes, that's stuff that really helps us out. And it lets us get a bigger audience to keep doing this. So thanks a lot. Yeah. We had some really nice reviews from people on iTunes, including Arkham Yogurt and uh, GJ Blizzard. Uh, I don't think I would buy Arkham Yogurt. I don't think I would get, (laughs) I would not import my yogurt from Arkham. Yeah, that's Iceland is fine, Um, but. (laughs) But I would mark their iTunes reviews as relevant. Uh, And so anyway, thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for um, tossing us a review or recommendation if you, if you have done so and think we're, worth it um you can find all of our show's information at truedetectiveweekly.com and we will be back next week to talk about episode four thanks guys see you guys bye